Our passage this morning is 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. And the Bible's there in your seats. That's page 1015. Uh, Next week we'll have a passage focused on celebration of the resurrection, and then we will, after that, return to 1 Corinthians. I know I have benefited greatly from our time in 1 Peter, and I hope that you have too as a a temporary uh, uh, separate path, but as we come to an end in our time in 1 Peter for now, hopefully maybe we'll come back in the future. Let's hear what God has to say through his servant, the Apostle Peter, to the churches and to us. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hosanna in the highest. You may be seated. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you. We seek your face. And we ask, Lord, that in your presence, your spirit would speak to us now. Through our reflection on your word, through the preaching and declaration of the truth, Lord, I can only bless your people as you provide. And so I lean on your spirit for the purpose of preaching. We all lean on your spirit for the purpose of receiving. Be glorified in this time, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Last week, we looked at what First Peter had to say about suffering and hardship and persecution, how Peter tells these men and women who are spread throughout these various regions that the suffering and the persecution they are experiencing is not the end. It's not the whole story. It's not the last word. He reminded them as he drew attention to Jesus, Jesus who was rejected but became the chief cornerstone. He was put to death, but brought to life as the beginning of his church. And that therefore, as we are rooted in him, as we are built upon him, we can endure that awkwardness of being exiles, the hardship that comes along with it, the alienation and persecution, knowing that in Christ, we have life. In Christ, we have community. We have purpose and a sure and steadfast status as his beloved people. Last week was the what of our union with Christ, what we have. This week is the so what. So if we are in Christ, and if he is building us together into a spiritual house, if he's making us a royal priesthood, if he's holding on to us as a treasured possession, what does that mean for the way that we live among the nations? those that are not building their lives upon Christ? How should we live as God's people among those that are not God's people, who may not like that we are God's people or the way that we are called to live as God's people? How do we relate to our neighbors as strangers in a strange land? 
what does God want from us? My parents, uh, after many years of marriage, finally took a long anniversary vacation. My dad had a work assignment to uh, uh, that had come to an end, and they were going to go on a cruise and to celebrate. And so for the first time that I could remember, we were staying as a whole family with someone that wasn't family for about 10 days. We're staying with a, a family in our church, uh, the Thackers. And, uh, and of course, before we went and stayed with them, and they were empty nesters at this time, their kids had moved out, we got the, the speaking to from our parents about making sure we, we obeyed and respected and uh, paid attention, and, and yet this was a new house. I didn't know all the rules, they weren't family, they weren't familiar, and it really came to a head when the Thackers reported that things were going well, but one night they heard murmuring from my room. It was late, like 10 o'clock, well past my bedtime, and so they came to check on me and open the door, and I was fast asleep, but speaking to myself in my sleep, I was saying, is this appropriate? Is this appropriate? Is this appropriate? When we're in unfamiliar circumstances, it's sometimes hard to know how we're supposed to act. Was I supposed to do things the way we did at, at, at my house? Was I supposed to do things the way that they did things in their household? How was I supposed to be? Peter understands that in many ways, these Christians who are not at home, they're not amongst family, have similar questions. He guides us as those in Christ, as those that belong to Christ, as cared for by Christ, as beloved of Christ, to consider how we walk as Christ's witnesses among the nations. And I apologize, I, I usually don't like a long outline, but there's five things I noted from the passage. And so we're going to look at these five aspects of what it means to be Christ's witnesses among the nations. And one of the things that we need to deal with from the very beginning is the acceptance of our ongoing status. That is to set our expectations according to the status that God gives us. Expectations can heavily influence our behavior and therefore, and with that, our attitude. You know, when certain children in my household are going to a birthday party of someone else, especially the younger ones, we often have to remind them, this isn't your birthday. These aren't your presents. You shouldn't expect to be opening them. It's not about you. You don't get the first piece of cake. And so when they don't get that first piece of cake, when the presents aren't for them, it helps them respond a little bit better. And likewise, we need to have our expectations about this life, living among the nations as sojourners and exiles, reset. That is, our status is to live in this world but not as our home. To live in it, but not of it. To have certain rights and freedoms, but to understand that at the same time they are often tenuous and sometimes under threat. P. 
Peter opened the letter to these various Christians spread throughout these regions, addressing them as elect exiles. And here in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. The interesting thing about those two words is those same exact two words in the Greek are the translation of how Abraham, in Genesis 23, 4, designates himself as he is living in Canaan as he speaks to the Hittites. He wants to have land so that he can bury his beloved wife, Sarah. But he doesn't have a right to purchase land. He needs their permission. And acknowledges that after all these years, decades of wandering, despite God's covenant promises, he is still a sojourner and an exile. Though the land was promised to him, just as the world is promised to us in Christ, yet he would not receive it before his death, and nor will we receive it until Christ comes again. That until the king returns, that this world is not our home, it's not our nation, that we are yet exiles and sojourners. That means we don't view ourselves as citizens. We don't expect that we will be accepted. We don't expect that we'll have all the rights and privileges and protections that being a member of the nations, of being part of the Gentiles, would accomplish for us. We're going to be viewed as different. We're not going to be fully accepted. We shouldn't expect to have the acceptance of the world and the culture and the nations around us. But nor are we invaders, nor are we conquerors, nor are we enemies within the gate. Our job is not to infiltrate the society and take it over and have conquest because what we would be doing is conquering land that God says isn't good enough for us. The land that God intends for us is the land that he wins for us and offers us in Christ when he makes all things new. We shouldn't expect to engage our neighbors primarily as enemies nor as fellow citizens, but to walk this in between as sojourners and exiles. That means we are neither trying to blend into the society and be just like it, nor are we withdrawing from the society in our little Christian ghettos and, and subgroups, nor are we trying to conquer it. We should expect to be different expect to experience pushback, even rejection. And that helps us. Instead of taking offense, we anticipate this as part of the Christian life. We neither blend in nor wage war. We can't retreat to holy huddles. We can't go off to form some separate nation of our own. Because though we are sojourners and exiles, we have work here. We're not tourists. We have our green card. We have the ability and the license and visa to work, and God has worked for us here as witnessed witnesses. As those who are exiles and sojourners among the nations, we need to acknowledge we are witnessed witnesses. As one commentator points out, it's human nature that strangers are watched more closely than what's familiar. Now, sometimes that's out of fear, sometimes suspicion. Maybe it's just admiration or curiosity 
but difference draws attention. You see a car on your street at night, in the middle of the night, driving around that you've never seen before in an erratic fashion, you're going to pay attention. You come into a worship service at a Presbyterian church and suddenly we're moving our arms and we're saying things out loud, that's different. We're paying a little extra attention to that. Difference draws attention. And that means that if we are living in a society, in a world that is not our home, then the differences will draw the attention of others. Peter in verse 12 tells these fellow Christians to keep their conduct among the Gentiles as honorable. Because the expectation is that they are being watched, that the eyes of the Gentiles are upon the Christians, who will no doubt be different. But the difference of Christians from the rest of the world is it's not our dress so much. It's not our language. It's not our food. In fact, this is one of the things about Christianity is it can go forth into any culture, any ethnicity, any set of cultural practices, and that being Christian won't distinguish us in our food or our clothing, but what will distinguish us is our attitudes and actions with regard to the Lord. So for these men and women, it would have been their honoring of the Lord's day in gathering and worship. It would have been their lack of participation in cultic activities and worshiping the emperor or other false gods. It would have been in the love that they had for each other and for their neighbors, their honoring of the marriage bed, their caring for orphans and widows. Peter says, expect the eyes of the world, the nations, to be upon you. And accept that that extra attention often leads to extra scrutiny extra judgment. We might not appreciate it. It might not feel fair to us when Christians are accused of hypocrisy because we have one set of standards that we often fail to live up to while it seems like other groups and other philosophies and other religions are not held to the same standard. We might not like it, but we should expect it. And there may be some, be some value in discussing that when we're engaging with others. But what if instead of resenting the extra attention, we relished it? Not for ourselves, but for God. Because it is an opportunity for us, as those that God has called in Christ to be a royal priesthood, to do the work of interceding between God and the nations, of ministering God to the rest of the world. That means that our lives are never our own. That we are called to, as those who are witnessed by the watching world, to live as witnesses to God. It's not that we're trying to draw attention to ourselves. But we want others to look at us and see God. One of the things it means is that while words are one thing, and they are significant, and they are important, we also need to consider what people are seeing between and around those words. As we are being observed, people are making judgments about Christianity. They're making judgments about God whom we serve. What if our commitment to our Lord was such? What if our faith was so firm? What if our love for Jesus and for our neighbor was so profound that people saw past us to God? so that they might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day 
of visitation. We didn't ask for it. But the horrible tragedy in Nashville has brought extra attention to the Presbyterian Church in America. What kind of church was that? What kind of Christian school was that? What did they teach? Is there a reason that they might have hurt this person? What's the PCA getting ready to talk about at General Assembly this summer? These things you can all find in the news and being discussed on social media and other places. We can't escape it. The question should be, what will they see? What will they see about the Presbyterian Church in America? What will they see in our response to the tragedy? They're probably going to see some things that we wish that they didn't see. Ways that we have fallen short in this call to be witnessed witnesses for God. But I know one thing that they're seeing right now is that the first and foremost response of Pastor Chad Scruggs is not with wrath, with not political statements, but confidence that his daughter is resting in the loving embrace of Christ according to the same promises of the resurrection he preaches week in and week out. We can't help when the eyes of the world are upon us. We can't help how some of those things will be interpreted. Peter says here that much of the nations will call Christians evildoers because they don't participate in the cultic life because they don't add to areas of the economy which we can't participate in as those who are devoted first to God. But the question is not, what does the world decide about us? But are we seeking to give the world something to see that is glorious to Christ? That one day it will be acknowledged as good before God, however it is received now. We have to wrestle with the fact that so very often Christians are known for our fear, we're known for our hatred and our anger and our judgmentalism rather than our love. <laughs> Maybe not all of that is fair, but probably some of it is. Some of that is interpretive, but we also need to evaluate and look within what is driving our actions in the world? If the world is going to be watching us, if the world is going to be paying attention to us, if the world is going to be in tension with us, the nations are often looking at us and thinking, we are evildoers for what we preach and what we practice. What's going to motivate those actions? Will it be love, faith, hope, or anger, fear, pride? And that's why Peter in advising as the Spirit leads him to these churches that to walk as sojourners and exiles is to watch within. It's to accept their status, not as citizens, nor as enemies. To accept that they are watch witnesses, but also to watch within. The starting place in Peter's instruction about how they're supposed to live is to watch within. Within, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh 
which wage war against your soul. He's not setting up a body versus spirit dichotomy, uh, the spiritual world versus the physical world. But the worldly, the sinful, versus the eternal, the godly. And notice that the thing he addresses here is passions. That is, the desires which we allow to carry us along unto sin. James 4.1 gives similar advice. James, speaking to the church, says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What leads to this inconsistency in your practice? Why is the church so divided? Why isn't it being what it's meant to be? He says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That if we are to be faithful witnesses, if our conduct is to be honorable before the Gentiles, we need to look within, acknowledging that it's lust which leads to adultery. Fear can lead to lying, hate to conflict and murder, greed and covetousness to theft. And on one hand, this is just generally sound advice for Christians living in general. Jesus said, right, we're supposed to watch over our thoughts and our desires, not just our actions. It's just good advice. Because God cares about our hearts and our motives. Peter, earlier in this letter, said, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, because these ways were futile, and they had been ransomed from these ways. So on one hand, Peter is just saying, the Christian life means we are to be obedient to God within and without. These things are destructive to our soul. These passions which, pass, excuse me, passions which wage war against us are destructive to our souls, and Peter doesn't want that for the church. But on top of our conduct before God, this relates to our conduct with regard to the rest of the world. In, in one hand, first of all, because our witness is not meant to be performance. It's not supposed to be a show. What the watching world sees is meant to flow from the sanctification within to without. That conforming our desires to what is pleasing to God, meditating on His Word, asking the Spirit to work within us, is what's supposed to lead to what they observe on the outside. When we live a double life, hypocrisy destroys our souls and it often sears our consciences. Just think of the performative righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. They tithed the mint and the dill and yet they heaped heavy burdens on the poor that they were supposed to care for according to God's commands. And as Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Word of God, is preaching the truth to them, their consciences are so seared that they rarely respond with repentance. Our witness isn't supposed to be a show. Our witness is supposed to be an outflow of what God has been doing within us. Avoiding the destruction that will no doubt come if we set our outward performance against our inward desires. And this so helps us when what we want and what we expect isn't what we get. 
This gives us an anchor against consequentialism. That is to say, when we do the right thing, when we say the right thing, when we act the right way, and we're still not accepted, we're still not praised, then why would we keep going? Why would we keep doing the right thing? If it's because our desires have been conformed to what God desires, then we'll keep going because we're not doing it for the world. We're not doing it for their acceptance. We're doing it because we want to witness to the goodness of God. And the second thing about Peter is drawing our attention inwardly to our passions is it identifies the true enemy. Our non-believing neighbors, other religions, different political parties are not the enemy. We may be in conflict with them. But Peter doesn't say, watch out for those Bithynians. Be wary the Galatians. Avoid Cappadocians. No, the danger to their souls is first within their sinful passions. Again, it's not that the world may not oppose us or act as enemies. But that which is sinful, that which is dangerous, that which is demonic, is behind those things. In the world, we need to be wary that the same things at work in the world would desire to be at work within us. Later in this letter, Peter identifies an adversary. He identifies an enemy. It's the devil who would devour us. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of even evil in the heavenly places. Before the danger is without, before it's the sin of my neighbor, my coworker, that same sinful desire exists within me apart from the sanctifying work of Christ. Passion often leads to the attempt to respond to mistreatment with anger, with hatred instead of love or idolatry or acceptance over faithfulness to God. Jesus says we're supposed to turn the other cheek. Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies. That won't happen if our passions aren't being conformed, our desires aren't being submitted to Christ. We need to ask ourselves, do we spend more time waging war against the culture and our neighbors than we do against the sinful passions within us and within the church? It's not an either or. But do we spend most of our time looking outward for the threat instead of inward? 1 Corinthians 5.12, which we'll look at it in a few weeks, dealing with profound sexual sin amongst the Corinthians in an area of profound sexual sin, Paul says to the church in Corinth, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is not a diminishment of the evil in the world, but rather it's a taking of it seriously. We are not so much fearing the infection of the evil of the world. We are already infected and have been infected since birth. It's called original sin. But rather than trying to prevent infection, what we should be doing is going to the cure in Christ. 
which inoculates us against the temptation to be like the world in which we're living, to respond to the ways of the world in ways that look just like the world. In giving these instructions, we are called to accept our status, to accept that we're witnessed witnesses, to watch within and to look for whole holiness, to be fully holy, holy, holy. Having addressed the inward, Peter then addresses our outward conduct. He says to keep our conduct, that is something that is evident before the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He speaks of outward, observable conduct. And our hope is that before the nations, our conduct can be seen as honorable, that our deeds can be seen as good. But before unpacking that, we need to just deal with a presumption here that Scripture has. That is that the world can see some of our conduct as honorable. That the world has the capacity to see some of what we do as good. We describe this as general revelation, and this is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 2. He says the reason that the world is condemned for their sin is not because they didn't know all the specifics of the moral law of the Old Testament, but certain things were apparent about God. There were certain laws that they had written on their own hearts about what was right and good and honorable, and they broke even that. Since this is God's world, something of what is good and right carries over into the heart of all those made in his image. The Greco-Roman culture in which these men and women lived, they, they valued honesty. They valued self-control. They valued faithfulness and keeping of one's word. And so it was possible for our conduct to be seen as honorable, for deeds to be seen as good. Later, we can even influence their perception of what is good. Emperor Julian, who hated the Christians, often called Julian the apostate, described in and antipathy towards the Christians had to yet recognize the good of them caring for the poor. And he said, we need to start caring for the poor because the culture, the society, the empire sees caring for the poor as a good thing and we need to catch up with the Christians. We, we see this all the time. The, the sexual mores of our day, who you can be romantically involved with and the ways to be romantically and sexually involved with are not consistent with God's word. And yet, I know almost no one who thinks cheating is a good thing. Doesn't matter what the parameters of the relationship are, but the very idea of not keeping within the parameters of that relationship are almost universally recognized as not good. So however different the standards of the world, However, at times antagonistic to the values of God, there is still a capacity. God has still preserved an understanding of aspects of what are true and good. There are still ways that the world can look at us and see things that they can say, yes, that's good. I'm glad for that. So however marred by sin, however incomplete, they can see the good. Then which leads to our understanding of our full holiness. That holiness isn't just refraining from the sinful passions at work within us, the sinful ways of the nations that don't conform to God. It's not just refraining, it's also doing what's good. Doing 
good deeds, they may see your good deeds. And a deed is, another word for it is work. It's something that involves energy. Here it's something that involves effort and that there's evidence of. The holy witness of Christians is not just a refraining from the sinful ways of those around us, but it is about actively doing what's good. Rightly understood, sin is an omission and commission. It's not doing what God tells us to do, it's doing what God tells us not to do. And the flip side of that is that holiness means that holiness is not just not doing what we're not supposed to, but it also is doing what God tells us to do. We are called to do good for God's glory in the watching culture. In 1991, James Davison Hunter is a sociologist, a conservative Christian uh, working at UVA, wrote a book talking about culture war. He didn't invent the term, but his work popularized the term. And ever since, Christians in America, and not just Christians, but the political landscape has been talking about the waging of culture war. But here's the thing. James Davison Hunter was not advocating, he was not prescribing culture war, he was just describing what he saw. And there is a real truth to the fact that the values of the world and the values of those that don't follow God are in opposition, in conflict, wage war against us. There is real opposition. But there are other ways to approach the world than just to be at war with the culture. We can also care for the culture. The very language of culture comes from cultivate, the idea of something that we nourish for flourishing. And more so than waging war, we also see the language of nourishing, of planting, of plowing, of weeding, of harvesting in Scripture. The cultural mandate, the first commandment that God gives his people is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the world with his glory. To be, work this world to make it fruitful for his glory. And so that means, yes, we have to weed. Yes, we have to prune. Yes, we have to dig out some rocks. But hopefully we are also doing good that glorifies God in fulfillment of the cultural mandate. We're not supposed to retreat from the wilderness to walled off gardens, but were to go out into the wilderness, leaning on the streams that flow from heaven itself to change the wilderness into a garden as God provides. And we can do that because we have hope. This is the last point. That we neither respond to the world and its opposition with rage, nor with retreating. That we can stand in this in-between time and it be worthwhile. Because we have hope, excuse me, in the ability of the world to see in part now what will come to fullness when Christ comes again. We have hope that God can use us. That while our neighbor might describe us as an evildoer, that at some point their vision might be changed to see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That God, when judgment day comes may find some of the very people that were originally in opposition to us able to give God glory because their hearts and their minds and their lives were turned to God through the witness of those who looked different, talked different, acted different because of the gospel. 
And our hope is that even if they don't, that God is coming. The day of visitation throughout the Old Testament used by the prophecies to speak of the day of God's visitation, which brings justice and judgment. That we don't need to conquer this world for Christ. We can just be faithful stewards and sojourners and exiles because our enemies will be defeated. Because the war will be won. Because justice will prevail. Our call is not to win the world for Christ. It's not to protect ourselves in the holy huddle, but it's to trust that we can be exiles and sojourners instead of kings, warriors, and hermits and still be used of God, even now. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be ambassadors of the king. We are exiles and sojourners in foreign lands. And we serve a king who rode into Jerusalem not with a sword, but with the word of his mouth. Not on a war horse to conquer, but a donkey as one who had already conquered. Not to the shouts of his army, but to the songs of children. Not to vanquish Rome, but to destroy sin and death and display the love of God. The moments after his triumphal entry, the week after, looked like defeat. But we know that what Jesus did in laying down his life before his enemies brought the greatest glory to God. We, in our faithfulness, however the world receives, might glorify our King likewise. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, would we be faithful witnesses in this watching world, looking not to our ability to convert or change the minds of others to conquer or to keep ourselves safe from our retreat, but leaning wholly on you. We pray this in the name of Christ.